Bible scholar and author John MacArthur once said, you are the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. If you're a Christian, that is true of you. Which is why the Apostle Paul said, we are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. It's why he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. That's why the Apostle Peter said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. That's why the Apostle John said, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, 1 John 2, 5 and 6. And it's why Jesus said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you, John 13, 15. You see, for many people, you are the only representation of Christ they will ever know. Now just let that sink in for a minute. There are people in this world whose only knowledge of Jesus Christ is based upon what they know about you. Which means their entire understanding of who he is and what he is like is entirely based upon who you are and what you are like. Now with that in mind, what does Jesus look like for them? Is he someone they want to follow or someone they want to run away from? Is he someone they can trust or someone they have to be guarded around? Is he someone who always seems to be giving or is he someone who always seems to be taking? Is he someone who clearly, undeniably loves them? Or is he someone who is indifferent about them? What does Jesus look like to them? Listen, all you have to do to answer that question is look in the mirror. Because if you profess to be a follower of Christ, how you actually live your life is all that some people will ever know about Jesus. And of course, the way that we live our lives is determined by what we actually believe. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, said that faith apart from works is what? It's dead, James 2.26. Because the way you live is determined by what you believe. And so if, if your faith in Christ is genuine, if you truly believe in him and in what he said and in what he taught and in what he did, then people will see Jesus in you. They will. Because whether you like it or not, your life is a reflection of what you believe. Which raises an especially important question if people do not actually see Jesus in you. Because I think our tendency as professing Christians is to focus on behavior instead of belief. And so when a professing believer's life is not actually reflective of the life of Christ, we tend to question how they behave instead of questioning what they believe. And yet your behavior is nothing more than a byproduct of what you actually believe. Precisely why uh, the biblical writers, including Jesus, questioned people's faith wherever there was questionable behavior. 
The Apostle John said, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John 3, 6. In other words, habitual, unrepentant, sinful behavior. We're not talking about perfection, right? We all sin. But habitual, unrepentant, sinful behavior is an indication that you haven't actually placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, how you behave is a reflection of what you believe. When Peter was overcome by fear and began sinking in the sea, even though Jesus had just called him out of the boat to come to him, Jesus didn't say to Peter, why are you afraid, oh, you of bad behavior? No. He said, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Matthew 8, 26. In other words, do you believe in me or not? Jesus didn't question Peter's behavior. He questioned Peter's faith based on his behavior. In fact, Jesus questioned people's faith all the time based on their behavior, which we're going to see today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the gospel according to Mark because look, how you behave is merely a reflection of what you believe. And so look, uh, if your life today does not reflect the life of Christ at all, then instead of questioning your behavior, maybe it's time to ask the question, what do you believe in? Because look, uh, believing in Jesus Christ isn't just about saying a sinner's prayer at some point in your life. No, truly believing in Jesus is to, listen, it's to abide in him. Jesus said it this way, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides, in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you, John 15, 4 through 7. Clearly, being a Christian means abiding in Christ. It's the ancient Greek word meno. It means to dwell or to remain, to live there. You see, truly believing in Jesus means abiding in Jesus, which, by the way, is used 118 times in the New Testament alone. You know how, how many times the, the sinner's prayer is used in the New Testament? Zero. It's not there. Okay? Listen, to believe in Jesus is to abide in Jesus, to dwell, to remain, to live there. It's not that, uh, listen, it's not that saying a prayer of repentance and faith is wrong. It's not wrong. In fact, we do that here often. But listen, we do it as a first step toward a lifetime of abiding in Christ. And listen, when your believing turns into abiding, other people will see Jesus in you because your life is a reflection of what you believe. It may not be a perfect life, but there won't be any doubt about what you believe because of the reflection of Christ that they see in you. And so just ask yourself, if you profess to be a Christian today, just ask yourself, if I was the only example of Christ that an unbeliever would ever experience in their lifetime, what would Jesus look like to them? 
And if the answer does not reflect the Jesus that we find in Scripture, the Jesus that we see in these stories that we're uh, studying together about him, then maybe it's time you asked another question. What do I actually believe in? And look, the answer may surprise you as it did for so many in Jesus' day, as we'll see. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Mark chapter 7, and we'll begin by reading the first 13 verses. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God, by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. I bet they wish they hadn't asked him that question. So the Pharisees have actually summoned the contingent of scribes, experts in the law, to come up from Jerusalem, which was about 90 miles south of Capernaum, to investigate these teachings of Jesus because of the undeniable stir he's causing among the masses around the areas of Galilee. And immediately they notice that some of Jesus' disciples failed to wash their hands before eating, which was strictly forbidden in the oral rabbinic traditions, which is very important to note because Jesus and his disciples were not actually breaking the Mosaic law. The Old Testament law. Now, what they were breaking were the oral traditions of the rabbis or the elders. Okay, in Exodus uh, 30, 19 and 40, 12 and Leviticus 22, 1 through 6, only the priests, not the general population, the priests were required to wash themselves before entering the tabernacle. In fact, the only time the general population was required by law to wash their hands before eating was only if they'd touched a bodily discharge as outlined in Leviticus 15.11. So, so then why are these scribes, these so-called experts in the law, why are they giving Jesus a hard time about his disciples not washing their hands before eating? Well, it's because of these oral traditions of the rabbis who later added all of these rules to God's law, which in fact became so important to the religious Jews that in their own hearts and minds, these traditions had superseded God's law itself, which is actually well documented in ancient literature, including the first century historical work called Antiquities of the Jews by Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. Also, uh, in the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are painfully detailed descriptions of these traditions and their elevated status among the Jews. And yet, most importantly, 
it's spelled out in the written record of the oral traditions itself. The Mishnah is part of the Talmud, which is the central text of rabbinic Judaism, which says, and I quote, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. The Mishnah also says that anyone who touches the sections of the Old Testament books of Daniel and Ezra that are written in Aramaic, so uh, you understand the Old Testament was predominantly written uh, in Hebrew, right? Except there's a few portions that are written in Aramaic. And so the Mishnah says that anyone who even touches one of those sections of the Bible that are written in Aramaic, their hands are actually made unclean by touching those pages. And furthermore, any scriptures that are translated into Assyrian, those scriptures themselves become unclean until they're translated back into Hebrew. You see, their traditions had become more important to them than the law of God that those traditions were created to honor in the first place. Second century Rabbi Eleazar, he's one of the most famous, influential, and respected rabbis of all time, said this, he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. In fact, the rabbis taught that Moses actually received two laws on Mount Sinai, the written Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Pentateuch or the Mosaic Law. And then they say he received a second law, the Oral Mishnah, which is not what the Bible says. There were also numerous Hebrew idioms, ancient sayings to help the Jews remember the importance of the oral tradition. I was reading a few of them uh, this week. One said, if the scribes say our right hand is our left and our left hand is our right, we are to believe them. Another reads, there is more in the words of the scribes than the words of the law. You understand what they're saying, right? These religious Jews had elevated their own religious traditions above the word of God itself. And so Jesus calls them out, first by quoting Isaiah from the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, when he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. And then he gives them a specific example. He uses the rabbinic custom or tradition known as korban. Uh, korban is the Hebrew word for offering, which was derived from the practice of devoting your earthly goods and wealth to the Lord, as described in Leviticus 27, 28 and Numbers 18, 14, which was a great concept, except for the fact that once again, the rabbis used their traditions to completely undermine the original intention of the practice, and so Jesus spells it out for them. He quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, which meant, among other things, that grown Hebrew children were to take care of their aging parents when their parents could no longer care for themselves. And so in order to be able to get out of having to spend the money and goods and time taking care of one's own parents, the rabbis said that a person could declare all of his personal wealth and goods as korban, which meant that all of his wealth and goods were now devoted to, to God and would therefore pass on to the temple upon his death, sort of like we write in a will today, which also meant that his wealth and goods could no longer be used for any other purpose on earth including taking care of one's parents. 
Yet there was one very important exception to the Corbin rule. The regulations for Corbin did allow the individual to spend his wealth and goods during his lifetime for his own benefit. He just couldn't spend it on anyone else, including mom and dad. See, it was nothing more than a way for them to be able to dishonor their parents by denying them the proper care, all under the guise of honoring God with their wealth. So Jesus says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus was infuriated by their twisting of God's word to suit their own desires, which is exactly what people do today. It's what you get when people say they believe in God, but they don't abide in him. You get religion at its worst. And so Jesus says, enough with your traditions, enough with your religious rules. Can't you see how they abuse God's word and God's people? In essence, Jesus is saying to them, don't believe in religion. And listen, It's not that religious behavior is bad in and of itself, but when your focus is on how you behave instead of on what you believe as it was for the Pharisees and scribes, you end up with a man-centered religion instead of a God-centered faith, and the results are always disastrous. You've probably heard people who are opposed to Christianity specifically or even religion in general talk about all of the horrible things that have been done throughout time in the name of religion. And that is true because nothing done solely for the sake of religion ever turns out well. However, everything, every single thing that has ever truly been done for the sake of Christ and his kingdom has been good. Not necessarily popular, but good. As the Apostle Paul said, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans 8, 28, for those who are focused on God and not on religious behavior, he works all things together for good, which leads us to the inevitable question, what is it that you actually believe in? Religious behavior or a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure, just take a long, honest look at your own life because your life is a reflection of what you believe. And so when when people hurt you, when they speak against you, when they try to undermine your joy, when when they talk to other people about you behind your back, when they lie to you and lie about you, do you love them? Because Jesus does. And if you actually abide in him, then you will too. When someone doesn't believe the way you believe, when they don't vote the way you vote, when they don't act the way you act, when they don't do what you think they should do, do you treat them with dignity and honor as human beings who were created in the image of God himself? Because Jesus does. And if you actually abide in him, then you will too. 
Do you spend more time thinking about what you can give rather than what you can get? Do you spend more energy doing for others than you do for yourself? Do you spend more of your life focused on God's desires rather than your own? Because Jesus does. And if you actually abide in him, then you will too. You see, look, you can be religious and hate people. You can be religious and regularly treat people with disrespect and dishonor. You can be religious and forever focus on yourself more than anyone else, but you cannot do any of those things when you actually abide in Christ. So what do you believe in? Religion or abiding in a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what he was exposing in the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes, and it is exactly what his word exposes in our own hearts today. Let's keep reading, verses 14 through 23. And what he called, and he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, And are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So ritual purification, uh, originally based on Leviticus 17:15, as it relates to elaborate food and cleansing rites, was profoundly important to the religious Jews, as evidenced by the fact that a full 25% of the entire Mishnah was devoted to the issues of purity. Furthermore, uh, archaeological excavations are continually discovering Jewish cleansing pools as a standard feature in Jewish homes and in Jewish uh, settlements in the first century. In fact, there were cleansing pools discovered on the summit of Masada, one of the most arid places on the planet, just to give you an idea of how serious the Jews were about their purification rites. And yet in this one pronouncement in verses 14 and 15, Jesus effectively dismantles the entire rabbinical system of ritual purification when he says there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And so as you can imagine, uh, the disciples, these Jewish men who have had ritual purification rites drilled into their minds from the time they were children, they were having a hard time understanding what Jesus was saying. You see, they weren't stupid. They just couldn't get their minds around, especially their hearts around, what Jesus was telling them. So he explains it to them further in private. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within. 
and they defile a person. In other words, nothing outside of a person can produce righteousness or unrighteousness within that person because the root of the human condition already exists deep within the heart of man. Sad reality is, evil comes from within. And so when it comes to what you believe in, Jesus says, don't believe in yourself. Now listen, I understand that this may turn out to be the least popular point in a sermon outline ever preached in the modern history of the church. Because we're taught from the time we're children, at least in this culture, to believe in ourselves, right? But that's actually not what Jesus taught. He said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, exactly nothing. Now look, uh, last week our missionary guest talked about our value and he was dead on. In fact, we cannot overstate our value. But listen, valuing ourselves and believing in ourselves are two altogether different concepts because although God values us above everything else in all of his creation. Absolutely, he, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and me, right? Which means your value is off the charts. St. Augustine once said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Yes, God values us, and so we should value ourselves in the very same way. But listen, God does not believe in us. He doesn't believe in us, which is why we needed him to send us a savior, because we needed someone we could believe in. The apostle Paul said, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, of anything that you could ever do, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you understand to value yourself is to honor Christ's sacrifice, the price that he paid for you. But to believe in ourselves is actually to dishonor his sacrifice because if we can believe in ourselves, then we don't need him. Author Rebecca McLaughlin wrote, to be a Christian is to acknowledge your utter moral failure and to throw yourself on the mercy of the only true good man who ever lived. I've seen people uh, quote the line, I can do all things with a reference to Philippians 4.13, but they leave out the second half of the verse. Yes, I can do all things. How? Through him who strengthens me, right? Through Christ. Listen, you can do all things, but without him you can't do anything. This is precisely why some number of people leave the church every year because they can't handle preaching that doesn't affirm their inherent goodness even though the Bible says that we're inherently evil. David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, Psalm 51.5. In other words, every single one of us was born into sin. The Apostle Paul said, none is righteous. No, not one, Romans 3.10. He said, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature, we were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2.3, through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Listen, whether we like it or not, evil comes from within. From within what? From within us. New Testament professor Matt Skinner writes, 
Jesus' comments propel us to keep our evils in the spotlight. Whatever Satan is in Mark's gospel, it is not the cause of wrongdoing. That job belongs to the human heart. Placing blame on a diabolical entity lurking in the shadows risks diverting attention from our own propensity to rebel and destroy. Truly, evil intentions dwell not only within society's notorious figures, but within ourselves and those we love and trust most fervently. Okay, it's a simple fact. Listen, if your starting point for navigating this life is to believe in yourself, then inevitably, unquestionably, and without fail, at least if you attend a church that teaches the Bible or you actually take the time to read it yourself, uh, all of it, by the way, not just the parts you like, then inevitably, you are going to have a crisis of faith because your life is a reflection of what you believe in. And so if what you believe in is yourself above all others, and yet you read the Bible, then inevitably you're going to have to reconcile what you believe in with what his word actually says. Because you cannot read the Bible. You cannot read the Bible and be an intellectually honest person and come to the conclusion that believing in yourself is what the Bible prescribes. It's just the opposite, in fact. Don't believe in yourself. Don't believe you're good enough. Don't believe you're worthy enough. Don't believe you're deserving enough. Don't believe you're strong enough. Don't believe you're special enough to be able to accomplish one single good thing in this life apart from Christ because without him you can do nothing. Now, with him, ha, <laughs> When you abide in Christ, that is an altogether different story. As we're going to see as we finish the story for today. Let's read it, verse 24 to the end of the chapter. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. In Matthew's account of this same story, he says, Because of your great faith. The demon has left your daughter, he said. She went home and found the child lying in bed. And the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephaptha, that is, be opened. And his eyes were opened, excuse me, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So for the only time on record in Jesus' public ministry, he leaves the ancient borders of Israel and ventures into a pagan land, Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was 20 miles northwest of Capernaum. Sidon was a little bit further north, uh, both 
being on the Mediterranean coast in a part of modern-day Lebanon. It's the same area that Jezebel came from. And this was a region that the rabbis said was devoted to uh, rampant idolatry and blatantly excessive paganism. In other words, ritual purity goes out the window when you travel into places like Tyre and Sidon. And then along comes a woman, a pagan Gentile woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon, meaning she's also now unclean. And this woman falls down at the feet of Jesus and begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. What a profound contrast between this Gentile woman and the Jewish authorities, right? The scribes and Pharisees considered themselves ritually clean. And because of their faith in their religion and in their own perceived ability to live up to that religion, they had no need of Jesus. And yet here's a pagan woman, decidedly unclean, who understands that her only hope is in Jesus. And so with a determined faith, a faith that, that wouldn't take no for an answer, she doesn't just ask Jesus, to heal her daughter, she begs him. In fact, she won't leave him alone because she knows he's the only one worth believing in. And because your life is a reflection of what you believe in, she does what no unclean, pagan, Gentile woman would otherwise ever dream of doing. She relentlessly pleads with Jesus until he replies and he says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That was a, a Hebrew idiom, an ancient Hebrew saying. It was quite common at the time among the Jews. You see, Jesus was continuing to make his case about the religious Jews' idea of purity because dogs in the first century were the epitome of unclean. And so he points out the ritual uncleanness of this woman and her daughter using the Jews' own derogatory language right before he makes them clean. Why? Why did he do that? Jesus was a Jew. Because God so loved the world. Ritually clean or not, it doesn't matter. And just look at the woman's response. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't try to justify her own culture or even her own humanity. She doesn't say, hey, how dare you call me a dog? She doesn't try to defend her own sense of goodness or worthiness or righteousness because she wasn't interested in fighting for her rights or her respect or her honor or her dignity. Why not? Because she didn't believe in religion and she didn't believe in herself. No, in that moment there was only one thing she believed in and that was Jesus Christ. And as a result, her response, her humble response to Jesus, it's nothing short of brilliant. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And immediately, Jesus heals her daughter. What a profound contrast between this woman and the religious Jews. And then Jesus goes on to the Decapolis, the same Gentile region where the man with the legion of demons was from back in chapter 5. And he heals another Gentile, a man who was deaf and mute. Listen, this entire chapter is a powerful story about the futility of believing in religion and the emptiness of believing in yourself. And yet at the same time, the story is absolutely filled with the hope of knowing that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how messed up your life might be today, you can believe in Jesus. In fact, 
He's the only thing worth believing in because religion won't save you and you cannot save yourself. It's only when you come to him in humble, faith-filled submission that you are truly made clean and made whole. You see, in Christ, in Christ you are good enough. In Christ you're worthy enough. In Christ, you're strong enough. In Christ, you're clean enough. In Christ, you're holy, accepted, righteous, redeemed, restored, powerful, and perfectly whole. All of the things you could never be without him, you are when you abide in Christ. But listen, believing in him means more than just praying a simple prayer. It starts with that. But it leads to so much more because truly believing in Jesus means abiding in Jesus. And interestingly, when Jesus talks about us abiding in him in this passage we read earlier in the Gospel of John, he likens our abiding in him to branches that grow out from the vine. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You see, the two are inseparably linked, permanently connected. The branches rely on the vine for strength and support and nourishment. Without the vine... The branches can do nothing. But when the branches abide in the vine, they produce fruit because your life is a reflection of what you believe in, or in this case, abide in. And so look, if your faith is in religion, you will undoubtedly be full of religion, and other people will recognize you as a religious person. And if your faith is in yourself, you will undoubtedly be full of yourself and other people will recognize you as a self-centered person. But when your faith is in Jesus, you will undoubtedly be full of him. And listen, people will recognize Jesus in you. This is so important, not only for yourself, but for the many people to whom you may be the only representation of Christ they ever know. So please, let that hit you hard. The fact that some people's entire understanding of who Jesus is and what he is like is entirely based upon who you are and what you are like. Let the weight of that reality sink in. Your life is the only Jesus some people will ever see. And since your life is a reflection of what you truly believe in, I'm simply asking you to consider today. What do you believe in? Let's pray.